Look with me in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, as we read the word of God. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all, unri- of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. Gospel change. This is not change that happens pragmatically, meaning this is not a change that, you, that someone undergoes in order to get a certain result, um, where it's a superficial change, where it can con- the change can continue, but if given the opportunity to revert back, you would. This is not that kind of change. This is not a change that comes through uh, a powerful self-will or discipline uh, in order to achieve a certain goal. This is a change that happens because a mortal comes to meet with the eternal God and he cannot but change because he just met God. That is what that kind of change is about. Um, when I was growing up, uh, there was a time when I didn't really care about the church. I didn't care about the Bible at all. I went to a retreat, uh, mainly because there was a pretty girl there. <laughs> I was in seventh grade. And uh, also because I wanted a new experience. And I was going into the youth group for the first time, and I thought it would be really fun. Well, during one of the sermons that the pastor was giving, he was teaching about how Elijah came, and he was battling the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel. And fire came down from heaven, Uh, because God was revealing who the true God was, that Baal was a false god. And at that time, what struck me 
was not only that miraculous event, but that little passage, those few sentences in that occurrence in, in the Old Testament, that referred to the spectators, that referred to the people of God, who were, because they were so entrenched in idolatry, because they were so used to growing up with idols and worshiping idols, when they saw the match happen between Elijah and the Baal prophets before God sent fire down from heaven, Elijah challenged those spectators and said, if you will follow God this day, then follow him. But if you will follow the Baals, then follow him. And what was striking to me was that the scriptures record the response of the spectators as saying, no, they were completely quiet. And I, it, was, it just struck me that I was in that position, that I didn't want to make a commitment or a decision because there were certain risks involved. There were certain things that I would lose. I would lose certain friends, lose a certain way of life, a certain um, way of, con of living my life that was comfortable. But ultimately, I didn't invite that change, but it came to me. And it's not about that experience, but I'm saying this to show you that God can create authentic change where it's not self-induced in order to achieve a certain goal, right? God can interrupt your course of life and completely change your heart and your mind so that you see the world, yourself, and God completely differently, right? Just utterly not the same. This is what happened to Paul. And here in this passage, Paul He's going on his first missionary journey. By the way, he has two names, right? Saul and Paul. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name, right? From this point on, after this passage, he is known as Paul, no longer Saul, right? Um, not that he changed his name. Uh, he's both Saul and Paul, but from this point, this first missionary journey, and where he speaks to this magician, that is trying to maintain control over his assets in Cyprus, in the island of Cyprus. Saul comes to a point where he is no longer known as the Jewish persecutor, right? But where he is consistently defined as someone completely different than he was. There are a few things that, that happen when God brings that kind of change in people's lives. I want to show you three things. Number one, there's a spirit-led direction. Spirit-led direction. Not self-created direction, but a spirit-led one. Number two, there's the proclamation of God's word. God's word is always proclaimed verbally, and it is always present. And number three, there is a belief that occurs cross-culturally, okay? So spirit-led direction, there's the proclaiming of God's word, and then there's belief 
that results from those two prior things. So you have something divine, and then you have the human responsibility component. And when those two things are present, you have belief, which leads to change. Let's look at the spirit-led direction. When you look at what's going on here, in before, when this first missionary journey of Paul is about to happen, you see that there is a diversity of people. There's a diversity in two main ways, roles and origin of people. So people are different in what they do and where they're from. And that's the church at Antioch. That's what the church is. The church is not meant to be cookie-cutter people where only those who will conform to one little human-centric characteristic can be a part of, okay? It's not just an ethnic group of people. It's not just a socioeconomic group of people. It's not just one gender-specific group of people. It's not just this homogeneous group there's a diversity. When you look in verse 1, there were prophets and there were teachers, showing that there are different roles in the church. And prophets and teachers, of course, they're important roles in the church. But not everybody is a prophet and not everybody is a teacher. But that doesn't mean that anybody who's not a prophet or a teacher is not important in the church. In the church, there are different roles. And each role has its function. And it's equally important. When you look at Paul's argument for the church, for the diversity of the church, as he compared it to, the, to a human body, one member of the body cannot say to the other that we don't need you. And just because one member is not as prominent or easily observed as the other doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. That's his argument. Not only is, it, is there a diversity in roles, there's a diversity in origin. If you look at the names that, that are mentioned in verse 1, you have a Greek, you have Jews, you have Africans. Right? These three groups would never come together outside of this, in this way. But because of a spirit-led direction, there's this diversity, and that's one of the components. Not that being diverse is the way and the only evidence for a spirit-led direction. You see, diversity is not the goal, but diversity is something that happens when the spirit is, le is leading, right? Because when diversity becomes a goal, all of a sudden, you become a homogeneous group again, right? It's like it's like being a, a, a it's like being a church without a denomination, and you pride yourself in not being part of a de denomination. But then sooner or later, that church without a denomination becomes a denomination in of itself. In the same way, when diversity becomes the goal, sooner or later. Diversity becomes uniformity, right? And diversity ceases to become, to, ceases to be diverse. 
So in the spirit-led direction, when the spirit of God leads, there is diversity. And so in, the, in a congregation, you will find people that are very different from you. And that's okay, and that's supposed to be that way. The thing is, we shouldn't seek diversity as a goal. Even though we know we should be diverse, it should, ne it should never be the goal of any congregation. But in, when the Spirit leads, there is diversity. Not only is there diversity, there is unity. And the unity is found in the Holy Spirit. When you look at verses 2 to 4, there are a few things that show that these diverse people were unified in the Holy Spirit and nothing else. They weren't unified in ethnicity, not in socioeconomic positioning, not in where they lived, okay? They were unified in the Holy Spirit. And in verses 2 to 4, you see that they were worshiping. They were fasting. Fasting, when you fast, it's basically a way of saying that right now, God is much more important than anything else, even my very survival even more important than the most basic human needs. There was worship. There was fasting. They were receiving instruction. The Holy Spirit gave them instruction. They were praying. And they were commissioning people, and they were being commissioned by people. Commissioning means to be sent by someone else or to send someone for a specific mission, commission, right? So Paul and Barnabas were being sent to give the gospel not only to the people in Syria that was close by to Israel, but to the people beyond, which started with Cyprus, an island. And so Paul and Barnabas, they went from the east side of the island to the west side, from east coast to west coast. And throughout their journey, they preached the gospel. They were united by the Holy Spirit. A congregation, a spirit-led congregation, is defined by these things, by a culture of worship, a culture where they affirm that God is more important than just basic survival needs, a culture where a congregation is open and willing to receive instruction from the Lord himself. And today, God doesn't speak in the same way that he did back then. Back then, he spoke verbally and directly to people. Today, he speaks through the scriptures. And so when the Lord speaks to us today and to receive instruction today, what it means is that we are open to what the Bible teaches us about how we should live, about what we should hope for, about where we should find strength about how we should conduct our lives. Open to receiving instruction from the scriptures. They were in prayer, depending upon the Holy Spirit, knowing that the course of events in their lives weren't just a combination of human beings getting together and working things out. You see, it's, it's very far from pragmatism. Pragmatism assumes that they need to take the best course of action that will develop the, res the desired result. You see, this is not a pragmatic approach. They were practical, yes, because when you look at the way that they sent Paul and Barnabas out, they didn't send them to some other part of the world that was hard to get to. 
they sent them to a region right below them, and then off to the next main uh, strategic island, which was Cyprus. Right? So it's not that they didn't exercise wisdom. They did. Right? But they were praying. They understood that even in the most normal human interactions and decisions and choices that they made, that there was the Spirit of God who was at work. And they were being commissioned and they were commissioning. This is what it means to be united by the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may still have questions. Some of you may still ask, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is working today? Well, when we look at two to four, there are a couple things that show that the Holy Spirit is working today. Because let's be honest, we don't hear a mighty rushing wind. When was the last time you heard someone speak a language that they never learned just spontaneously, like in Acts 2, right? We don't see these things today. So how do we know that the Holy Spirit is at work? When you look at Acts 13, verses 2 to 4, there are two things that you can look for to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Number one, there is instruction from the Holy Spirit. Number two, there's action that is taken by faith in the Holy Spirit. So there's instruction that the people are receiving from the Holy Spirit, and then there's action that they take as a result of that reception of instruction. Because they have been instructed by the Holy Spirit, they now translate that into action that they take in their lives. In other words, there's the Scriptures and how it teaches us Are you being taught by the scripture? Or is it a pattern of um, a patchwork of philosophies and worldviews that you are taking from different avenues of life and neglecting the scripture? To see the Holy Spirit work in your life, you must have the place of scripture in your life where where you are learning from the scriptures regularly. If you have been neglecting it, and if you've been wanting more meaningfulness, purposefulness, more happiness or joy and satisfaction out of your life, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And you can't have that unless you're open to that. The scriptures instruct us. And once you have a clear understanding of what it is that the Holy Spirit wants you to do through your exposure to the scriptures, then you take action. Right? You take action by faith in the Holy Spirit's teaching. So there's this spirit-led direction. When that happens, the Spirit of God is leading because no one can make you do that. Even yourself, you may not even want to do that until God himself works in your life so that you have a change of heart. And it can happen. It happened to Saul, who became a Christian. Right? It happens to a lot of people that you may have known in your life. People who didn't care about God who after interacting with the Word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they began to change. 
The Spirit-led direction is when you interact with the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit leads you to take action from the Scriptures, from what you learn from the Scriptures. There's the proclamation of God's Word. Cyprus was an important island because it was close to the coasts of the mainland. It was very strategic. It was well known for its fruits and flowers. And also, its chief source of wealth was from mines and forests. So they had an abundance of precious stones and metals, and they, ex- they exported all of that with other things like wine, oil, corn, spices, right, seasonings. The forests, the trees that they had, it was filled with trees. It was used for shipbuilding, and they traded it with other nations. So it was an island that was doing very well. And in that time, the word of God was proclaimed in two ways, to make the gospel, to make the gospel change people's hearts and minds, okay? Now, money changes people, right? That's what you've heard, and that's what people say, right? Uh, One of the classic things is, let's say you win the lottery, right? And then, you know, you, all of a sudden you have all these friends, right? But then as soon as you use all your lottery money, these friends are gone, right? Now, here's the thing. In an island that was wealthy and that was doing well, it was not wealth that changed them. What changed them was the instruction of the gospel and confrontation, right? Instruction of the gospel and confrontation. Here's the thing. God's word is proclaimed, and when it's proclaimed, it's instructed, and, it's, and it confronts people with sin. The gospel was taught to a man named Sergius Paulus, And it was taught in Cyprus among the synagogues that the Jews had. And the proconsul, if you don't know what a proconsul is, it was the highest ranking official in a Roman senate in a province, according to the ESV study Bible. So in other words, he was the top dog in his province. And he was basically, you know, rubbing elbows with, or rubbing shoulders, what's the term? I don't know. But... You know, his companions were people in politically high places. And this person, Sergius Paulus, he was curious about the word of God. And so he actually sent for Paul and Barnabas, who were commissioned by the Antiochian church, to come and speak the word of God to him. He was curious. He wanted to know. And he sought to hear the word of God, verse 7 says. So you're going to find people who are very curious about the Word of God. Not everybody grows up hating the Word of God, right? Some people, they're just, they had no exposure. And there's no negative sentiment concerning the Word of God. There's just curiosity. And the pro-council, he invited, he wanted to hear the Word of God. And so there's this instruction, there's this passing of information and knowledge to him. Now, 
There was also another guy, a magician, Elimus. He was a false prophet, and he wanted to turn the pro-council away from the faith. So the reason why he wanted to do that was because he had a close relationship with the pro-council on the island of Cyprus, and he wanted to make sure that he wanted that his position was secure. So he was willing to oppose gospel proclamation and gospel truth in order to maintain his control and his relationship with the pro-council. So he's willing to reject and to deny and to not be open to the word of God in order to solidify his political position. And so what Paul does is pretty direct and pretty astounding. What he says to Elimus is that he says, you are full of deceit and fraud. He actually calls him the son of the devil. He says that Elimus is the enemy of all righteousness and that he, could, he tells him to cease making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And Saul is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit when he says this. And he looked at him. He fixed his gaze at him. Now, here's the thing, guys. You can call this awkward. You can call this socially inappropriate or rude, right? But here's the thing. Growing up in the Northeast, confrontation was not rude. It was considered having courage and being honest. Coming down south, I heard that confrontation was rude and arrogant and that you needed to not be so heavy-handed directly in your communication with people. What I'm trying to show you is that these communicational values at times are socially and culturally located. They're not universal truths. But here, you see, when it comes to the Word of God, sometimes confrontation is necessary. And we're, we're more... I know this is Elena, it's a little different from Southern culture, but in some ways, we avoid confrontation. Some of us, we really don't like it. But do you see that when true gospel change happens, there needs to be confrontation? Right? When a person accepts Jesus Christ, they must see that they are a sinner and that their ways are wrong when it comes to God. Right? The way that I was leading my life up to that point when I was confronted with my values and had to decide whether I was going to live the way that I wanted to live or whether I was going to submit to the authority of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. I had to be confronted for the things that I felt that I needed in my life. Confrontation is necessary, but instruction is necessary as well. What happens in the mission field sometimes is that people go on mission long-term, even short-term missions, and they emphasize doing stuff for people and giving to people. And right now, in, in the conversation in, in missions, is that when people overemphasize that and do not emphasize gospel proclamation, instructing people in what the gospel says, and also confronting people with their sins, Right? What happens when that is reduced 
and this social reformation, when that is emphasized, what happens is you, developed, you develop a culture of entitlement in the mission field. And so you come in with your mission team, and they'll be attracted to you because you're handing out all these things to them. Because ultimately you want to show them that God loves you and that Jesus Christ died for you. But when the gospel becomes de-emphasized and it's decreased, its place is decreased in the mission objective, you see that people only come to get stuff and that they will actually resent you if you stop giving them, giving to them material goods. And you see, there is no true change. And the same thing is true within the church. You see, we need, this is part of the reason why we have a corporate confession of sin. It's not there just to be pretty or to be reformed, right? The confession of sin in our liturgy is there so that we as a family, as a church family and congregation, can be weakly confronted with our sins. It's there, so that, that's why we say it all together. Because sometimes we don't know what to say in prayer, right? And the confession of sin is there to help us articulate better how we should be confronted with our sin and how we should submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why that's there, right? And what happens when the Spirit leads a congregation and what happens when the congregation continues to put at center the proclaiming of God's word is that there is belief that happens cross-culturally. And what I mean by cross-culturally is that when you look at Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the top dog in Cyprus, right? He was, he's described as a man of intelligence. And of course, he's the proconsul. And so in some ways, he's superior to others. Right? People who may not be people of intelligence may find it very difficult to relate to him or may be intimidated by his intelligence. People who are not in, in positions of political power may be afraid of Sergius Paulus or they may feel like they, they could never really know a guy like that. But in other ways, he's inferior to others because it also, the passage also describes Sergius Paulus as believing when he saw what happened to the magician. So Paul, after Paul confronts the magician of his sin, he says, you will be blind for some time. And the magician was blinded. It says, a darkness and a mist came upon him immediately, and he was blinded. When Sergius Paulus saw that, saw that he believed, and he was amazed. Now, you're like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, let's take a look at John 4. Verse 48, it says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He said this disparagingly, meaning you should be able to believe without seeing signs and wonders. In John 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you And him is Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you see, even though the pro even Sergius Paulus, he was superior in some ways, in intelligence and in political power, he was also inferior to some other believers because he had to see in order to believe, just like Thomas. Right? Now, here's the thing. Even this man, he believed. 
That's the power of the gospel. It can take people who are on completely different sides of the spectrum, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, experientially, right? Experientially, right? And they can bring those people together to form a community that are devoted and committed to the gospel. And in many ways, Sergius Paulus is no different than any of us. In many ways, we all need to be spirit-led. He was spirit-led. We all need the preaching of the word of God. He needed that. And we are all different from each other, and yet we all need to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us together. I know that a lot of times um, people say we need to get to know each other in order to be united. And I understand that. I find that very important. And that's why, you know, um, we want to plan for events where we get to know each other. But I want to tell you that that is not the ingredients, the only ingredients for unity. In fact, it's not sufficient. If there is no gospel proclamation in getting to know each other, then you just get to know each other, but there's no gospel change for years and years. People stay the same. They never grow, right? Gospel change. A church is more than a social community. Gospel change happens when there's not only people who are getting together, but when there is a spirit-led direction, when there is the proclamation of the word of God, and when people from different sides of the spectrum begin to believe in that one Lord, that one faith, and that one God. That's what a church should be defined by. That is the church of Acts, and that is what we should be as well defined by the gospel, commissioned by the gospel, right? Whether we live or die, it is for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and for...